We went through part one. Part two, we divided into two parts because there was a lot there. And now we're on the third part. And we've been focusing on primarily the we, the collective, the church, the universal church from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 until the Lord comes to snatch up his bride, the church, and take the church and all the living believers at that time to be with himself, the dead in Christ having risen just before the snatching up, the rapturing of the living believers at that time. What we will do, Lord willing, next week is we're going to look at who we are individually in Christ, and we'll see several beautiful pictures that Scripture paints of who we are individually. But thus far, we've looked at two beautiful word pictures, beautiful analogies that help convey spiritual truth, that the church is his building, not just any building, but a holy temple. We saw last week and the week before that we are also his body. He is the head of that body, giving direction, just like our head gives our body direction. He is the head of his body, the church, and we are all members of it. Today, perhaps the most beautiful picture, we are his bride. And again, men, maybe we need to talk to some of the ladies here about the significance of being a bride. They're probably going to get this more than we are. But I want you, if, you've been, if you're married or been married, to think about your wedding day as well, whether you be a man or a woman, but from a man's perspective, focus on your bride and remember what it was like then. And then speak to her or speak to one of the other ladies about what it might have been like for them on that day, their wedding day, as a bride. We are part of his bride. But there, as we saw last week, there was a connection between the building analogy and the body analogy. So too, there is a connection between the body analogy and the bride analogy. And oh, by the way, at the very end, we're going to see there's a connection between the building analogy and the bride analogy. All three analogies, building, body, and bride, are connected together in order to fully appreciate what we are, the universal church, the local church, and the individual believers in the local church, in order to fully appreciate the fullness of what we are in Christ, we need to tie together all three of these analogies. There is a connection. It was brought out very clearly in the passage we read this morning. It begins talking about wives. Wives, be subject to your husbands. There we have the marriage analogy, the bride analogy. Be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head. Now we're getting some body in there. The head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. You see the bringing in of the body, which we covered in the two previous lessons, two previous messages, with the marriage or the bridal analogy. It goes on as well, uh, else, uh, near the end of the passage that we read this morning. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as, exactly as, Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Again, tying together the body and the marriage or bridal analogy. They're connected. I, I, I think that if we spent some time alone, in private, prayerfully, meditating on these analogies, the fullness of who we are in Christ, our relationship to Christ, the God of that temple, the head of the body, and the husband who lays down his life, sheds his precious blood, nourishes and cherishes his wife, that that fullness would overwhelm us with gratitude and appreciation for all that he has done for you and I who have trusted in Jesus alone, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. It would overwhelm us. So much worship would well up in our hearts. The praise and thanksgiving would come from our lips, not just when we sing these beautiful songs of praise and worship to him, but even at home, alone, uh, commuting to work. I mean, think about what we're going to see today. Contemplate those precious truths this week, maybe as you're driving to work or doing housework or yard work, whatever you're doing. And let these truths, let God impress them even deeper into your hearts and souls and watch how it changes you. We are part of Christ's bride, not just the ladies, but the men as well. The bridal analogy is an eternal analogy, as we're going to see. Even the book of Revelation in the latter chapters talks about the bride of Christ. It's not just for time, it's for eternity as well. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. After going through all those verses, most of the verses that we read, verses 22 to 31, this is what Paul says about the marriage relationship. He calls it a mystery. And he says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and his church. A proper biblical Christian marriage that's functioning properly according to scripture is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Remember when we talked about a Christian marriage early on in our Fall Thinking Biblically series, we talked about the fact that God holds these pictures in very high esteem. He wants these pictures to be perfect. He wants us to live out and model these pictures perfectly. And remember, Moses destroyed a picture, a similar picture, a rock, Christ the rock, who was struck once to produce and bring forth life-giving salvation, the water of salvation and was to be struck only once because Christ died once for all according to the scriptures. Moses in anger 
the second time they passed by that rock and they needed water, in anger he strikes it a second time instead of obeying God and speaking to it. And as a result of marring that beautiful picture, God said to him, you will not enter the promised land. And so Moses died in the wilderness just beyond the Jordan and never saw the promised land that he had led the children of Israel for 40 years to enter that land. Marriage is a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. We're going to see what that picture is like this morning by the way we as his spiritual bride live. Let us never mar that picture. We're going to see what's involved with it. Christ's role in this marriage relationship is that he nourishes and cherishes the church. He displayed his cherishing, his love for the church by laying down his life for the church. Going to the cross, bearing the sins of the world in his body, shedding his precious blood and died but he continues to nourish and cherish us by his word and by his spirit. That is Christ's role in the marriage relationship. Most of the message is going to focus on what our role as the church, the bride of Christ, and the individual believer as a portion of the bride of Christ is going to be. What is our role, our responsibility? Christ's role is also described as a man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. That is Christ's role in the marriage. He left the glories of heaven. He left his father's throne. He became a man on this earth and then suffered and bled and died as the savior of the world. Christ's role was to leave and be joined to the church, his bride, and the two shall become one flesh. This one flesh relationship, I don't know that it's always understood correctly. You've got to remember, what did the Jews always look to? They looked to the Old Testament particularly the law of Moses. Paul was a Jew. He was raised a Jew. He was only brought to salvation as an adult when he was on his way to persecute the church. Where in Moses' writings do we encounter this idea of one flesh? You don't have to go any farther than Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to come across the one flesh relationship. What did Adam say after God created Eve from a portion of Adam's side? He said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. One bone, one flesh, the same. This is the one flesh relationship. This was before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. This is before sin entered creation. Adam and Eve would be truly 
one flesh, one purpose, in agreement on everything. This is the concept of one flesh. That word joined is used of disciples uh, who join a teacher. Uh, it's a, a related word, a synonym is used of yoking together two ox in a yoke. So they pull the plow straight. This involves not only Christ, but as we're going to see, it involves us as well. The one flesh relationship is, begins with Christ, but then we also need to have the same mind, the same purpose, the same goals as his bride, the church, as Jesus Christ had, as Jesus Christ has for the church today. This marriage relationship, this marriage analogy, this bridal analogy is going to involve three key things, and we'll see this from passages in the New Testament, particularly the passage we read together. It's going to involve willing submission, it's going to involve loving devotion, and it will involve holy purity. Let's look at the willing submission. The church is commanded to be willingly submissive. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ. The church is, in fact, subject to Christ, but must willingly subject itself. This shouldn't surprise us that we must willingly subject ourselves to Christ. The Pharisees in the Gospels focused too much on the externals of the Mosaic law, and they neglected what they even they considered to be perhaps the most important passage in the Mosaic Law. Every Orthodox Jewish boy learns to read this passage in Hebrew. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your being, all that you are. See, it, that goes beyond external conformity to commands. Jesus Christ, in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, elaborates on that and shows that the external commands were not all that God ever intended. But obedience and submission comes from the heart. He said, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry at his brother has committed murder. He went on to say, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust has committed adultery in his heart. He goes beyond the external, the physical act, to the attitude, to the heart, to the soul. Submission comes from within. Obedience to the instructions of Christ found in the New Testament begins from within. We must willingly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
respect is part of that submission. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Remember the husband and wife? It's a picture of Christ as the bridegroom, the husband, and the wife, the church as the wife or the bride. Respect is involved there. Respect is demonstrated through obedience. Willing submission always involves obedience to what Jesus Christ has stated in Scripture, either through his own words or the words that he gave to the apostles to transmit to the church. Respect is seen in obedience. It's not lip service, it's life service. It's how we live our life. There's willing submission in order to accurately understand this beautiful picture of Christ and his church, the bridegroom and the bride. There's also loving devotion. The foundation of loving devotion, it's like with everything, it begins with God and Christ. Scripture says we love him because he first loved us. The foundation of loving devotion in the marriage picture, the bridal picture, the bridal analogy is that Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. He did it first. He loved the church first. As a result of his demonstration of great love, we ought to love him in return. His love is the foundation of our love for him. There's a reciprocity. It's not just one way. We need to love him back. For a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. As I stated, this one flesh, if Christ is loving the bride and the bride is not loving Christ, that's not one flesh. That's not one purpose. That's not the pre-Genesis 3 Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There is the same loving devotion that he displayed not only to his father, but to the church by going to the cross. We need to display that same loving devotion. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our life daily for him and live for him. The third characteristic. We've seen willing submission. We've seen loving devotion. There is holy purity involved. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why could Christ give himself up? Do you remember Christ in scripture is called God's Passover lamb? Do you remember the Passover lamb? It was examined for four days. On the 10th day of the month, it was selected and taken into the household. And it lived with the family for four days. And they examined it to make sure it had no spot or blemish. It had no defect. There was nothing wrong with that lamb. And then on the 14th day, it was slain. And its blood was placed on the door frame. And when that brought about life. The destroying angel passed over that home 
that had the lamb's blood on it. And there was life in that home and no death. Christ is our Passover lamb. He is without spot and without blemish, the scripture says. As of a lamb without spot or blemish in 1 Peter 2. Christ was able to be the foundation, not only of loving devotion, but of holy purity, because he always did those things that pleased the Father. That's what he said, and the Father spoke from heaven more than once. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Not somewhat pleased, not occasionally pleased, but well pleased all the time, because he always did those things that pleased the Father. He was without spot and blemish. He is the foundation of holy purity. And as the head of the body, remember the body and bride analogy are joined together, he sanctifies his bride. This is positional purity. He sets his bride apart for himself, for no other. He doesn't share the bride with any other. The bride is for him and him alone. No divided heart. No divided love from the heart. The heart and its love is for him and him alone. He sets the church aside. He loved the church, gave himself up for her. For what end result? So that he might sanctify her, set her apart for himself, him alone, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Positionally, we are already clean. That word there is the gospel. It's not the normal word that Paul would use. He wrote in Greek, the common Greek language of the day. It's not the word that's used of the written word of God. This is the spoken word, the gospel. We are set apart for Christ alone through the proclamation of the gospel and our belief and trust and faith in the gospel message that we trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. What he did on the cross is all we need. We can add nothing to it. No prayers, no money, no good works. We agree with God that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, and they do not merit salvation. They do not earn a salvation. Christ and Christ alone paid the price and provided salvation. He set us apart for himself through the gospel. The purpose of setting us apart is so that one day, think about this for a moment, one day Christ is going to present the church to himself. He's going to call for the bride, and the bride will come and present herself before him in all her glory. I mean, we've all seen a bride in her wedding gown, whether it had a, a, a long train behind it or a short one, but that beautiful white wedding gown coming down the center aisle to the bridegroom. She was resplendent in all her glory. Never did that young lady look any more beautiful than on her wedding day. She was in her glory. We know this. This is part of the analogy. Picture 
this. You've seen it, I'm sure, whether it be on television or you've actually been in a uh, uh, present for a wedding. The glory of the bride as the bridal march is played and she finally enters through that center aisle and walks down in all her glory. One day, Christ is going to present us to himself in glory, in beauty, no longer marred by sin. The foul blackness of sin will be gone, and we will be like him. The scripture says, for we shall see him as he is. This is why he set the bride apart. Not just to bless us in this life, but to present us to himself. But it's not just positional, and it's not just future. There is a practical purity that Christ as head sanctifies his body, uh, his bride for. That he might present the church to himself in all her glory, that's future, having no spot or wrinkle, but that she would be holy and blameless, just like Christ, the Passover lamb, was holy and blameless. Christ not only desires to present us holy and blameless, he desires us to live our life as his bride here on the earth until he comes for us and calls us to be with himself. He desires us to be holy and blameless, to have no spot or wrinkle. I'm not just going to ask the ladies this, I'm going to ask the men this. Now, some of us are older, okay? I, I, I get that. But for you younger ones, or, or older ones like myself, when we were younger, how many of us looked forward to that day when we were going to have age spots and wrinkles? Oh, I can't wait for that first wrinkle. And we checked the mirror each morning looking for the wrinkle. How many ladies do that? How many of us men ever did that? We don't. We don't want spots or wrinkles. There's a spiritual lesson there. Those spots and wrinkles are the opposite of holy and blameless. Christ wants us to be practically pure, not just in word only, but in deed, not with our lips, but with our life. Paul, to the Corinthians taught again exactly what Christ had taught him. In Ephesians 5, he basically is telling us what Christ had taught him. Now, he's telling the Corinthians his purpose in preaching the gospel to them, leading them to faith. He said, I betrothed you to one husband, not multiple husbands. He betrothed them to Christ not to false idols, not to idols of the heart, not to money, not to prestige, not to man's praise, not to anything else. He betrothed them to one husband, Christ, an undivided heart that loves Christ more than anything else, that I might present you as a pure virgin. Again, 
there is a word picture there. I don't need to go into detail. We all understand what that means. That is the idea of our betrothal to Christ. Right now, the marriage ceremony has not taken place. That happens in Revelation 19, as we'll see. That's yet future. But right now, we are betrothed. The marriage arrangement has been made. And Paul betrothed them to Christ so that at that time, when Christ comes for the church, he can present them as a pure virgin to Christ, a heart that was always devoted to Christ and to nothing else in this life. Holy purity is the eternal state of the bride. It's not just temporary, but when the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb actually takes place, that holy purity continues throughout eternity. In Revelation 19, in verse 7, we read, Rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It's finally arrived. John's seeing a vision of what is yet future here. And his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen or a white wedding gown in our day and culture. Fine linen, bright and clean, having no spot or blemish, no spot or wrinkle. Bright and clean for the fine linen. This wedding garment are the righteous acts of the saints, not the sinful acts, not the unrighteous acts. It is living in accordance with Scripture, is what clothes the bride in fine linen, bright and clean. And throughout eternity, that will be the clothing of the church, of the bride of Christ, of each individual saint, each individual Christian who is part of the bride of Christ. Holy purity, though, is not guaranteed. In this life, Paul said in Second uh, Corinthians 11, I betrothed you to one husband so, so that to Christ I per might present you as a pure virgin. But in the very next verse, he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve in Genesis 3, by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to be on our guard. We are involved in spiritual warfare. There are forces of wickedness, spiritual forces of wickedness, that would try to defile the pure virgin of Christ's betrothed bride. Deceive the bride of Christ particularly the individual mind, the individual believer, that our minds will be led astray from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. How would this happen? A little later in the same passage, he says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan will do this primarily, not solely, but primarily by disguising himself as an angel of light. 
Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants, false teachers, he mentions them in some of the verses in this passage prior to verse 14. Those are his servants, false teachers. If his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose ends will be according to their deeds. Satan will try to leave uh, lead the bride of Christ astray through false teaching. That's why it's so important to listen to sound biblical teaching. Not all Bible teaching you hear on the radio or particularly Christian television is sound, is accurate. The vast majority of it, I hate to say, particularly on the Christian uh, television stations, is not good teaching. You need to be careful. This is the way Paul warned the Corinthians, and Satan doesn't change. He uses what works. It worked with Eve in the garden. It'll work today as well to lead some astray. False teachers will attempt to lead you astray with nice-sounding teaching, exciting teaching, teaching that builds up your ego. It's never the words that are most important, though. It's the deeds. Their end will be according to their deeds, and so will everyone who, na- who professes salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not what we say. It's what we do. It's our deeds that are going to determine our end. Not that our deeds earn us salvation. They do not. Salvation is not as a result of works, Paul writes to the Ephesians. Our deeds are evidence of our salvation. They're not the means of salvation. They are the evidence of salvation. And one of the deeds is holiness and purity of devotion to Christ, a holy purity as his bride. Again, the bridal analogy is eternal. And here we see it tied together with the building. In Revelation, this is Revelation 21. The slide is in error. This is Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride. You see the building, the holy city? Now the bride, adorned for her husband. Picture that bride coming down the center aisle in her bridal gown. I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the building of God is amongst men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. You can't separate the bride from the body or the building analogy. But this is an eternal bride. God's purpose is to dwell with us as his people. Jesus Christ will be with us and we will be his bride and he will be the bridegroom. The passage goes on. One of the angels spoke, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, the wife of Jesus Christ. He carried me away in the spirit and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is an eternal analogy. You want to understand something about heaven? Who here has not thought, oh, I wish I knew a little more about heaven, what heaven was going to be like? 
You want to understand a little about heaven? One thing about heaven? Prayerfully ponder, prayerfully meditate on the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. Think about what those words are conveying. Think about what we know of a marriage relationship, a proper, properly functioning, biblical Christian marriage relationship. That gives us a little foretaste of something in heaven. The Sadducees asked Christ, you know, who's, if a woman had seven husbands in this life, each one died and she married another man and the last one dies, in the resurrection in heaven, whose wife will she be? What did Jesus Christ say? You do err in not knowing the scriptures or the power of God for in the resurrection, they will be like angels in heaven. Like angels. We're not going to be angels, but like angels. In what way? The context. Marriage. There'll be no marriage in heaven. Why? Because we're the bride of Christ. We're not going to be married to our earthly spouse. We're married to Christ. Think about marriage. Think about the bride and the bridegroom. Meditate on it. Think about it. Talk to the Lord about it, and you'll gain some insight as to what your relationship with Jesus Christ is going to be like throughout all eternity. There's something you can know about heaven. I don't know about you, but I find that exciting. Before I came here today, my wife said to me, the bridal analogy, what, what is your favorite thought about the bride of Christ? And I said to her, my favorite part about the bride of Christ is the bridegroom. How many women have walked down the center aisle and the bridegroom was standing there? Was she, oh, oh, what the, oh, boy, that's a nice train on my robe behind me. Oh, oh, look, look how it glistens in the light. Is that what the bride was doing? I don't know. You'll have to tell me, brides, but I never noticed a bride checking out her wedding gown. She might have, when she in the dressing room with the, with the bridesmaids and maid of honor helping her get ready or her mother, you know, she might have been looking at herself in the mirror there. But when she comes down this aisle, when she's going to meet the bridegroom, she's not checking out her wedding gown, is she? Am I wrong, ladies? When my wife said to me, what's your favorite part about the bridal analogy? I said the bridegroom. And then I quoted to her the last words, uh, the last stanza, the last verse of a traditional Christian hymn, hymn 105 in the Black Worship Hymnal. I remember it very well. It's entitled Emmanuel's Land. Who's Emmanuel? Isaiah 714, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. A prophecy of Jesus Christ, God becoming man on this earth. Emmanuel's land is the name of the hymn. And the last verse says this, The bride eyes not her garment, 
but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb. Are you thinking biblically about who you are in Christ today? Today, will you begin to see yourself as part of Christ's beloved and holy bride? Will you begin to live a holy and pure life that Christ desires of his bride? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, uh, we thank you so much that you have laid down your life for your bride, the church, and for each one of us who is part of that bride, who has trusted in you and you alone for salvation. And Lord, we know that we have been betrothed to you, and we desire to be a holy bride, a pure virgin, whose heart loves you and you alone. Oh, dear God, by your spirit, would you be pleased to produce such a holy love and devotion in us that our heart is always and only desirous of you and not the worldly trinkets that Satan offers us that will soon enough pass away. Dear God, we look forward to that day when you will send your beloved son to bring his bride home. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that that coming might be soon, that we might stand before you reflecting your glory in our white robes and that you might be well pleased with your bride in that day. We ask all this for your glory. In your name's sake.